the initial conditions as well. So those are two kind of separate things. These constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. For example, a change in the strength of the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the power of 100, it's a very small number, <laughs> very small change, because that's a very big number, 10 to the 100, would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Uh, the cosmological constant that drives the inflation of the universe is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the power of 120. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing just by chance are on the order of 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Um, for those not used to scientific mathematical notation, like me, concrete examples really help. Um, it's generally estimated that there are something like 10 to the power of 80 atoms, I think it is, in the observable universe. So these numbers are much, much bigger. <laughs> so Craig observes that to, for us to detect design rationally, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. He's saying it's not sufficient for us to observe something and say that thing is very, very unlikely. Therefore, it must have been designed. That, that won't work. Roll a dice a lot of times in a row. You will get a very, very, very unlikely result. That is not enough to show that the result was designed. So he says, we also need conformity to an independently given pattern, not one that we've just read off the dice rolls, but an independently given one. He says, when these two elements are present, we have what's called specified complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. And he gives this lovely example. He says, thus, in a poker game, any particular deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. Right? It's one hand of cards out of all the possible hands of cards that you can make out of the deck. Right? And everybody who's dealt around the table gets a hand of cards. All of those hands are equally improbable, and they're all very unlikely. But of course, that's not enough to prove that your hand of cards was the result of design rather than chance. Yeah? But, says Craig, if you find that every time a certain player deals, he ends up getting all four aces, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. And that 
dealer who keeps getting all four aces couldn't allay our suspicions by saying, what are you complaining about suggesting that I'm cheating? After all, every hand of cards is equally unlikely. <laughs> or someone enters a sequence of numbers into a cash machine and it gives them money. Were they A, lucky, or B, did they get the money by design? Now, of course, you might say, well, it's possible that they were lucky. Maybe they were lucky. But which is the more probable explanation? Which is the best explanation? That they were lucky or that they got the money by design? When a complex, that is synonymous with unlikely, can use those terms interchangeably here, complex and unlikely event matches an independently given, particularly useful here would be a, a functionally specified pattern. You know, that's the only pin number that will access money from the account attached to this card. It's a functionally specified pattern that has to be hit. We tend to infer design and quite rationally say. So here's uh, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodinov in their book The Grand Design. They note that the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. In effect they're saying the initial state of the universe exhibits specified complexity. How improbable? Uh, Norwegian uh, philosopher Espen Lokhammer uh, quotes uh, cosmologist Luke Barnes, pictured here, who has calculated using conservative numbers the combined odds that a life-permitting universe should exist on the assumption that naturalism is true, so that these values all have to be hit kind of without design. What are the chances? He says it's less than one part out of 10 to the power of 136. It is difficult to exaggerate how unlikely this is. The, these numbers are literally beyond astronomically big, right? Or physicist Lee Smolin has calculated that the odds of life-compatible numbers coming up by chance is around 1 in 10 to the power of 229. Well, here's uh, probably the most famous atheist in the world still, a fellow Brit, uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, author of books like The God Delusion, from which I'm quoting here. He says, the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which humans and their brains will come into existence. Well, we'll come into the second part of that later on today. <laughs> but note, he's talking about fine-tuned in such a way as to. That is complexity and specification cropping up again. Really, we have this argument. One, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Two, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. Conclusion, therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Right? So, how would someone like Dawkins respond to that argument? Well, the most famous objection here would be the so-called multiverse objection. It's basically the idea of 
um, giving ourselves more rolls of more dice in order to make it more likely that our numbers will come up. The many universes objection actually denies premise one of that argument by hypothesizing the existence of an infinite or at least a very large multiverse of differently tuned universes. It's like walking into a clothes shop and they've got all sorts of different sizes of clothing. So it's not at all surprising that you find one that you can inhabit, that you can put on and wear. So Dawkins suggests there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. We could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to allow, be propitious to our evolution. So nothing to see here folks. It looks designed but actually no, that's just misleading because there are billions of universes with different laws and constants. Problem solved, right? Well, I'd suggest there are at least eight problems with the multiverse hypothesis, which I've arranged here roughly in uh, ascending order of seriousness. Now, most of these objections, note, apply in spades, as it were, apply all the more to an actually infinite multiverse hypothesis. And there are, of course, additional objections to an actually infinite multiverse, particularly if you connect back to, say, Algarve's arguments against the concept of actual infinity making sense. There can be some application there. But anyway, the multiverse hypothesis is speculative. Astrophysicist Rodney Holder points out that the physics associated with multiverse models is speculative, to say the least, especially when it comes to string theory models. The theory is, of course, complex. Uh, Richard Swinburne says, to postulate a trillion trillion other universes rather than one god in order to explain the orderliness of our universe, the only universe we observe, seems the height of irrationality. You'd need lots of differently tuned universes to improve the odds of having a single life-permitting universe. And why are they differently tuned to each other? And so on. Any scientific multiverse hypothesis has to posit some sort of universe-generating mechanism. And perhaps it's this universe-generating mechanism, rather than its results, that should be compared with the God hypothesis here? Well, Stephen C. Mayer says multiverse advocates must not only postulate many universes, but two distinct types of universe-generating mechanisms in order to explain two distinct types of fine-tuning. Initial conditions, fine-tuning, and fine-tuning of laws and constants of physics. Yet, each of these universe-generating mechanisms themselves presuppose multiple 
hypothetical entities or processes. So it's a complex hypothesis. Now, philosopher Logan Paul Gage cautions that simplicity in explanation is a secondary virtue. It's not an automatic trump card. More complex theories should not automatically be discounted. Okay, fair warning. However, even if there is something of a, a discount on new tokens of old kinds. Okay, we already know that a universe can exist, so perhaps it's less of a stretch to say maybe there could be lots of other differently tuned universes, rather than to say yeah, maybe there's a non-physical intelligent creator. Right? And we can sort of compare these hypotheses, but he says even if there's something of a discount on new tokens of old kinds, it isn't a blank check. One new kind of thing in our explanation would be more than offset by infinitely many new tokens of old kinds. So we have to think kind of carefully about this comparison here. And Gage argues that theism is simpler than naturalism in terms of the number of fundamental entities postulated. So theism postulates one creator God as the fundamental reality. Remember, back to Meyer's quote, he says the multiverse generating ideas within cosmology have to posit two different fundamental kinds of realities, as well as lots of different universes. And so that comparison is a complex matter, but maybe one could argue that the, the God hypothesis is simpler, right? Three and four, that the multiverse idea is empirically unverified stroke unverifiable and it's ad hoc. So, here's a slide from The Simpsons. Okay, if X number of monkeys existed, then let's grant that they could type the plays of Henrik Ibsen to choose a Norwegian writer. Uh, by chance, just typing away randomly on their little monkey typewriters. If you've got enough of them, maybe they could do that. But anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an explanation for the works of Henrik Ibsen will ask, surely, if there's any independent reason to believe that there were X number of monkeys typing away at a lot of typewriters for long enough. If not, they will rationally reject the many monkeys hypothesis as an ad hoc hypothesis, one adopted purely for the purpose of saving a theory from difficulty or refutation, but without any independent rationale. That's what it means to be an ad hoc explanation. And they will favour the single author hypothesis. Surely the same thing goes for the many universes and one author of the universe hypotheses. Dawkins is really making this argument. He's saying, premise one, if there were enough different universes, then 
the specified structure of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. So he needs this premise, premise two. There are enough different universes in order to reach the conclusion that therefore the fine-tuning of the universe does not justify a design inference. Premise two is key here. I have it flashing away. Warning, warning. Danger, Will Robinson. You know. There are enough different universes, but as astrophysicist Adam Frank says, there is no empirically grounded scientific reason to believe there is such a thing as a multiverse of parallel realities. There's just no evidence for that theory. Cosmologist George Ellis says that the existence of multiverses is neither established nor scientifically establishable, he says. Five, the multiverse would be insufficient to explain away the data, perhaps, um, even if a multiverse did exist. What guarantees that it would be big enough and varied enough to explain away the very high degree of fine-tuning that we see in our universe? Philosopher of Science Bruce Gordon says there are many independent constants and factors that are fine-tuned to a high degree of precision. The cumulative effect of all of these fine-tunings significantly erodes the probabilistic resources of, say, the string landscape models. Graham Swinnard helpfully points out that even an infinite number of universes may not give the attribute that is required, that is, a cosmos fit for life, even if there's an infinite multiverse. Says, as John Polkinghorne commented, the infinite sequence of even numbers is distinctly short of oddness. So just because there's an infinite number of things doesn't mean you're going to get the type of thing that we're trying to explain. You'd have to have some sort of explanation of why that infinity includes that type of thing, which goes back to the complexity and ad hoc kind of issues with the thesis. Six, multiverse is question-begging, as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davies, author of books like uh, The Goldilocks Enigma, you know, why is the universe just right for life? He says, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse. To appreciate this, one only has to list the many assumptions that underpin the multiverse theory. First, there has to be a universe-generating mechanism, in the case of eternal inflation, a, a quantum nucleation of pocket universes, to be precise. But that raises the obvious question of the source of the quantum laws, not to mention the laws of gravitation, including the causal structure of space-time on which those laws depend, that permit inflation. Furthermore, if we accept that the multiverse is predicted by string or M-theory, version of string theory, then that theory, with its specific mathematical form, also has to be accepted as given. So Davies concludes that the multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. It just points you to a whole bunch of other things that themselves need explaining. 
As Mayer says, not only does the universe generating mechanism in inflationary cosmology require prior unexplained fine-tuning, he says it actually requires more fine-tuning than what it was proposed to explain. He actually argues that it makes the problem worse when you try and push it back. When you try and push the ruckle in the carpet under the sofa, the ruckle actually gets bigger when you're trying to offload it in this way. You don't get rid of fine-tuning. Indeed, he argues, you get more fine-tuning that needs explaining. That's from his uh, book, Return of the God Hypothesis, which I highly recommend. Seventh, the multiverse idea arguably undermines the practice of science. Physicist Brian Green uh, says the danger here is that if the multiverse idea takes root, researchers may too quickly give up the search for underlying explanations. When faced with seemingly inexplicable observations, researchers may invoke the framework of the multiverse prematurely, proclaiming some phenomenon or other to merely reflect the conditions in our own bubble universe, and therefore thereby fail to discover the deeper understanding that awaits us. So you observe something unlikely that seems to require explanation, and you say, oh yeah, but we live in a multiverse where all sorts of weird things happen, because unlikely stuff happens because of the multiverse. Nothing to see here, move on. That kind of undermines the rationale of doing science. Eighth, the hypothesis of a multiverse is actually disconfirmed. Um, Rodney Holder again says, Our universe is far more special than we would expect it to be, even if it were merely a random member or of the subset of universes that are compatible with our existence. So if you take the small subset of universes compatible with our existence, most of them are less ordered, less special than the universe we actually observe. Our universe is too fine-tuned to be explained away as just a, well, we happen to live in a random member of that subset. As atheist Roger Penrose writes in his book, Fashion, Faith and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe, Consider how ridiculously cheaper, in the sense of improbabilities, it would be to simply produce, by the mere random collision of particles, the entire solar system, with all its life ready-made, compared to the fine-tuning of the universe. So he says the problem is, why did we not come about this way, just random get this patch, this island of stability, life-permitting stability? Why do we not come about this way rather than from an absurdly less probable 1.4 times 10 to the 10 tedious years of evolution? Seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the bubble universe idea, the multi-universe idea. Now the danger that the multiverse hypothesis undermines science might, I'm told, be mitigated by the assumption that we are generic members of the multiverse, but that is an assumption that underwrites the problem of observational disconfirmation. 
So the undermined science and the observational disconfirmation problems actually form horns of a dilemma for the multiverse hypothesis. You have to face at least one of them. So in light of the cumulative case against it, I think the many universes objection does not constitute a sound defeater to premise one of the cosmic fine-tuning argument. Moreover, even if we were prepared to grant a multiverse, his philosopher Michael Rota arguing that our evidence supports a designer whether or not we're in a multiverse. Because a theistic multiverse, maybe God made lots of universes, a theistic multiverse is a possibility and a theistic multiverse would likely contain a higher proportion of life-permitting universes than would an atheistic multiverse. Just kind of a priori. Thus, our relevant evidence is more to be expected on a theistic multiverse hypothesis than on an atheistic multiverse hypothesis. Maybe it wouldn't be as strong an argument but even granting a multiverse, it still seems to be an argument for design. So Dawkins really retreats in his work to philosophical attempts to rebut these kind of design inferences from fine-tuning, for example. He says, the designer himself. This is very similar to the, yeah, but who made God question that you raised earlier. The designer himself in order to be capable of designing would have to be another, note this word, complex entity of the kind that in his turn needs the same kind of explanation. <gasps> oh dear. It says, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is itself at least as improbable. So he sets this as a principle of, of good and bad explanation. Question, do we make an explanatory advance if we explain this complex self-portrait in terms of the existence of the yet more complex Edvard Munch? I think the question kind of answers itself. Of course we make an explanatory advance in explaining that painting in terms of Munch, even though Munch is more complex than his self-portrait. Dawkins' principle of explanation is just obviously wrong. Indeed, Dawkins thinks he's arguing that we should reject explanations that are more complex than the data they explain. But Dawkins is more complex than his argument. So, by his own rule of explanation, he shouldn't believe he is arguing for his rule of explanation. That is, this, is, this objection is self-contradictory. And again, it doesn't get worse for you in philosophy than that. So, um, here's a second attempt from Dawkins, the design rebuttal uh, take two. He says, critics of my book try to deny that a god capable of designing something complex must himself be complex. But he says, but 
you know, God has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of the physical constants that would fine-tune the universe. Call that simple? God has to have enough bandwidth to listen to all the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. The one thing he can't be is simple. Well, in a debate that was chaired by the agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, um, Kenny actually had a bit of an interaction with Dawkins on this matter. And Kenny distinguished between complexity of structure and complexity of function. And he used the illustration of an electric shaver, electric razor, and a cutthroat razor. And he said, the electric razor can only be used to cut a beard. But the cutthroat razor might also be used to cut a throat. So he's pointing out that although the cutthroat razor is much more complex in its structure than the cutthroat razor, the cutthroat razor has what you might call a bigger complexity of function, things you can actually do with it. You could use it as a letter opener, you could chop your carrots with it, you, all sorts of things. The, the, the shaver is basically good for shaving beards, maybe as a paperweight or something, you know. But fewer things, even though it's got more complexity of structure. In other words, demonstrating that something has complexity of function doesn't demonstrate that it has complexity of structure because they're different things. Demonstrating complexity of function doesn't demonstrate complexity of structure. Back to Dawkins' quote, God has to be clever enough to calculate. He has to to listen. Now, all the things that Dawkins raises are things that God has to do. They are functions. So Dawkins is trying to prove that God would have complexity of structure needing explanation, like the fine-tuning of the universe, by arguing that God has complexity of function. Dawkins' response to Kenny was to say, I really don't see what you're saying, but I hope you do. He's saying that God can't be complex in the sense of being an unlikely contingent arrangement of parts if, for example, God were to be a necessary being. So Dawkins is here begging the question against God being a necessary being as is traditionally believed in theology. Uh, He's thinking of God like these OMG design your own deity fridge magnet sets that you can buy online, where you can mix and match your pictures of deities and come up with your own deity on your fridge. Uh, Because God is a complex arrangement of contingently linked parts. Well, no, if... if, Some gods may be like that, but you can't just beg the question against God being a necessary being. So as the atheist Thomas Nagel responds to this kind of objection, he says... God, you know, if there is one, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world that needs explaining in the way that 
specified complex physical objects like the universe do. None of Dawkins' observations is an argument showing that God must be complex and not simple in the relevant sense. Dawkins equivocates over the terms complex and simple in order to beg the question against God being a simple stroke necessary being rather than a complex contingent being. As John Lennox wittily pointed out, a book called The Created God Delusion probably wouldn't have sold quite so many copies. 